Glad that you're here this morning. Today is our last message in our current message series that we have called I Doubt. We've been talking about how we can stay on mission and help doubters and skeptics reconnect to God. And so over the course of the last eight weeks, we've been talking about so many of the things that doubters and skeptics are saying about Christianity and why they don't believe that Christianity is valid. Uh, The big idea of this message series has been that Jesus was not at all offended by doubters. And I really feel like if Jesus isn't offended by doubters, we shouldn't be offended by doubters either. Uh, In fact, I think we can take opportunities when we have conversations with people that are skeptical of Christianity, we can take that as an opportunity and help them understand what we believe and and how uh, the Bible harmonizes with so many different things. And if we wrangle with some of these questions, we really can be on mission with the doubters in the world. So the last few weeks, we've talked about things like there can't really be one true religion. Or how could a good God allow so much suffering? Those really big questions. Last week we asked the question, can you really be a scientist and still believe in Jesus? And we demonstrated really clearly last week that you don't have to choose between the two. And, uh, and so we've talked about all these different ideas. And if you've missed any of them, you can uh, listen to them on our podcast page at connectchurchonline.com or better yet, the Connect Church app has all of our messages on it and you can listen to the messages. Uh, but today we're going to talk about this one last topic and it's the idea that you can't take the Bible literally. So many people today are saying that you just can't read the Bible and believe what it literally says, and we're going to address that. Uh, next week, we're going to be turning to our new message series, and we're, we're making about a 180. We've been talking about doubters and skeptics, and next week, we're going to start with our new series called I Believe, and we're going to talk about the life of Jesus and how it intersects with our life. So we're going to take a look at six big picture things that happen to Jesus and talk about how we participate in those same things. Next week, we'll be starting with Jesus's baptism and why it's so important for us to be baptized as well. Note cards. You took the last one. (laughs) Nicely done. Well done. I guess all our note cards up here are gone, but there's more back there. If you haven't got note cards, you can pick those up. Uh, All right. Next week, I believe. Oh, squirrel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I lost my train of thought this is really important I I want you to know because this isn't in the link or any other announcements because Chris and I just kind of uh, decided to do this Uh, the Son of God movie just came out this last weekend you've heard about that it's produced by the same people that did the Bible on the History Channel Mark Burnett and Roma Downey they've produced a full length feature film the first film in 50 years that features the whole life of Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. And it's in theaters right here in Bozeman. And, uh, and I've been able to access clips from the movie that we'll be using for this upcoming message series. So that'll be cool in telling the story of Jesus, of course. Uh, but this Friday night, Chris and I are planning to go to the Son of God movie at the theater at the mall, the early evening show. I think it's at 6.30, but you should check your local listings. And uh, we want to make a Connect Church night at the movies. So any of you that would like to join Chris and me, uh, early evening show, Friday night, Son of God, be there. And if, you know, 100 or 200 connectors go, we might sell out the theater, so you might want to get tickets early, okay? 
Don't show up at 625 and think you're going to get in. We're going we're gonna to pack the place out with connectors. Sound like a plan? Yeah. Please join us. We'd have a good time. All right. End of shameless message for next week. Let's talk about the Bible. You can't take the Bible literally is the idea that's circulating out there. When I was growing up, I had a number of people that were highly influential on me. And uh, one man in particular, I think of with great fondness. He was my Sunday school teacher. He taught me how to swim. Uh, Good friend of my mom and dad's. His name is Dale Murray, and he's still alive today. And a great man who has influenced many people for Jesus. And uh, as my Sunday school teacher... Uh, Dale was wonderful, and he, and, and he was working with fourth grade boys, fifth grade boys, you know, that age where they're really stinky and obnoxious, you know, and I was one of, I hope there's no fourth grade boys here. Um, <laughs> and, and Dale was just great with us, and every week I'd go to Sunday school with my, you know, my group of friends, and every week Dale would work through that little Sunday school lesson planner. Those of you that grew up in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about, those little, uh, newspaper things, you know, and they'd, he'd read through the lesson, then he'd finish and he'd say, he'd, he'd put his papers down and he'd say, boys, I don't care if you remember anything else that I've said, but I want you to remember this. You won't amount to a hill of beans unless you read your Bible and pray. And he said that every single week without fail. And to this day, I can say it just like Dale said it. Boys, I don't care if you don't remember anything else I say. You won't amount to a hill of beans if you don't read your Bible and pray. And he'd say it every week, right? And, and he elevated for me to this day. I'm 51 years old, right? I can still remember those experiences of, of, uh, of the word of God, the Bible being elevated in my life. It's so important. And I was taught this from a young age. Dale also had some ideas about the Bible that now I kind of chuckle about because they were kind of funny, but um, he really believed that this book was really, really special. You know, it, it says on it, the Holy Bible, and so he, he taught us boys that there were just things that you needed to, to do to make sure that this book was treated with respect. So like he taught us, you should never, ever, ever put a Bible on the floor because that was disrespectful, Right. And he taught us, this, this is the one that, that I think is kind of funny. He, he taught us that if you have a stack of things in your home, the Bible should always be on the top of the stack. Right? And, and I kind of came to view the Bible kind of like this image that's on the screen. You know, it's like, oh, you know. And, and today, you know, I, I really believe that this book isn't like magic or the the pages and the the paper, it's not some sort of holy object, right? It's what the book says that's so important. It's what the book says and who it points to that's holy and sacred. But there's so many people today that are saying that this book can't be read and believed literally, that you have to assume that it has been embellished, it's been changed, it's been paraphrased, and that the book as we have it today can't be relied upon. And that's what we want to talk about today. In particular, there's so many people that are saying, you know, I don't think I can trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus. I, I I hear people from time to time say, you know, I I think Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't think he's really who the Bible says that he is. Writing about a hundred years ago, or maybe a little bit less, 
C.S. Lewis addressed that issue. And some of you that have read Lewis's works, you might remember this passage. He says this, I want to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You see, things haven't really changed in the last hundred years much, have they? Uh, Lewis goes on to say, a man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. There's that British humor for you. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And if I could summarize for it, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. This is what I would say Lewis was saying. Jesus is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those really are the three options that Lewis saw. Today, skeptics and doubters are adding another word in there that I think we have to address. And it's the idea that Jesus is really a legend, The idea is that the people who wrote the Bible and combined, brought the Bible together, collected the works that make up the Bible, were inventing a great legend. They weren't writing history. And that's what we want to talk about today, because really, uh, you have to start with who Jesus is when you talk about whether or not we can believe what the Bible says literally. Now, there's lots of doubters and skeptics in the world. You've probably heard about the Jesus Seminar. They've been on TV a lot the last five, six, seven years. Uh, This group of scholars that gets together and they pour over the Gospels and they decide in their infinite wisdom what Jesus really said and what he didn't say. The Jesus Seminar says that no more than 20% of what we read in the Bible attributed to Jesus is historically reliable. 20%. And then uh, you might remember a few years ago, Uh, A great book came on the market that was made into a movie called The Da Vinci Code. Remember this book? How many of you have read the book? Okay. I I read the book. I thought it was great. The movie, nah. eh. I've got a little clip for you. Take a look at this. I think it's really significant that that trailer ends with the line, Seek the Truth. And the reason I say that this was a great book and a great movie was because it was brilliantly written and it's had a profound effect on our culture. But what, what so many people have failed to recognize is that this book was written in a specific genre and that genre is historic fiction. And when they put a trailer up and say, seek the truth... And then they fill a movie that's full of fictional things that didn't really happen in history. There's a little bit of confusion that can come into our minds. You know what I'm saying? And this movie, the book itself, has influenced our culture to question whether or not this book is really historically reliable. Uh, the idea in the book was that Constantine was the one that collected the scriptures and decided what was in the Bible and what wasn't, and it was all for the purpose of consolidating power and oppressing other people. It's, it's a great story, but it's not true. That's not how history went. And so 
uh, people who, who doubt that we can really trust the Bible a lot of times are relying on stuff and ideas and philosophies that have no bounds or ha- have no foundation in historical truth. So that's what we're going to talk about today is can we really trust the Bible? And specifically, uh, Bruce and I today are going to give you four reasons why we believe that Jesus was not a legend. So if you're taking notes, grab your note cards. Uh, you can write these four reasons down, and I hope that by the end of our talk today, you'll say, you know what, I think I can really trust Jesus along with us. So Bruce, take it away. So the first, the first idea in, in disproving that Jesus was not a legend is this. The stories don't make sense if they're not history. And again, if you're taking notes, the stories don't make sense if they're not history. Now we have to, we have to go back to that time and, and realize that People wrote differently back then, okay? And when they talked about legends back in that time frame, um, it, it was in a different sense, okay? So in, in, in the Bible, Jesus is our hero, okay? He's the one that takes it all for us. He's the hero. And back then in the literary sense, the hero never would have died, okay? The hero wouldn't have died. The people around him wouldn't have been, you know, stumbling around like, like idiots. In our story, Jesus is actually crucified, and he is the hero. And, it, and, and in our stories in the New Testament, his followers really oftentimes were like idiots. They were weak, indecisive, unfaithful. Judas was a traitor. Thomas, Thomas he even denied that, that Jesus came back from the dead. And then, of course, we have Peter, the guy who denied that he even knew Jesus three times. In the Bible, the stories, and and, and you'll see it in greater detail as we go on, the stories are historically credible. Back in that day, when they wrote about legends, the stories weren't, weren't historically credible. The heroes didn't die. And their sidekicks... We're brilliant people. I want to I take a step back. And, and I want to look at legends from a, another side as well. I want to look at some maybe modern day legends of, of 160, 150 years ago. And I want to share a story with you about William Bonney, who is also known as Billy the Kid back in the day. It was hot out, blazing hot. As Billy walked up the steps to the saloon, sweat was dripping down his face. But through the sweat, you could see those piercing eyes glaring, ready to kill somebody at a moment's notice. Billy had already been credited with killing at least 20 men. Some would say hundreds of men. Depends who you talk to. The eyewitnesses seemed to change their mind and were different at times. Billy had just been out helping the Chisholm boys bring in the cows. and It was a dusty, hot day, and they decided that they would come in for a drink to clear their dry throats. 
Billy pushes the door open to the saloon. And as he's doing so, he hears three shots fired into the ceiling. And he looks over, and it's Joe Grant. Now, Joe Grant is also known as Texas Red. and He's one of those guys on the rise. He wants to have the fame that Billy has. He wants to be notorious. He's on the move. Perhaps today would be the day he could prove his greatness. Billy walks in with the Chisholm boys and as he does with his friends, says, I'll buy the drinks. They go up to the bar and the bartender's handing out the drinks. Billy's keeping an eye on Joe over there to see what's going on. Joe's been drinking a little bit too much and that's not in his favor. As they're standing at the bar, Joe Grant comes over and walks behind Jack Finian, grabs his rifle or grabs his pistol out of his holster and sets it up on the counter. Billy sees what's going on and trying to avoid a fight, steps up behind Joe Grant while Joe is talking to Jack and making fun of him, grabs his pistol out of his holster. He realized that, that Joe didn't reload his pistol. Clicks the cylinder around so the next three shots will be empty cartridges. Puts the gun back in his holster and jumps in front of him and says, Whoa, Joe, don't be messing with Jack. You know, this is old John's uncle. You don't want to go there. Turns around and walks away and he hears the click of a gun. Joe Grant had drew on him and fired into one of those empty cartridges. Before anybody knew what had happened, Billy the Kid had flipped around. His gun came out so fast, nobody even saw it. Shots were fired so fast, it sounded like it was maybe just one shot. But he really fired three. Joe was dead before he hit the ground. Billy looks at Joe on the ground, scoffs, and goes back to what he's doing, as if nothing had ever happened. And everybody continued upon their way. The stories of Billy the Kid are numerous, and most of them non-factual. Nobody really knew most of the stories and what had happened. But there was a time in history in the 1860s right around when these dime novels came out, and they started talking about these legends, legends like Jesse James or Wild Bill, Buffalo Bill, or even Billy the Kid. They didn't have to have any sources. They didn't have to have any credibility. And as you can imagine, the story that I just told you grew as time went on. It went from one man to probably 12 men with six bullets. Billy was bad. <laughs> they sold these books and, and wrote these stories to sell these books to kids. Kids would, would play in the backyards with their toy guns saying, I want to be Billy, I want to be Billy. The other kids, no, I want to be Billy, you be Joe. <clears throat> but they did it to make money. There wasn't a lot of truth in the stories, if any at all. But these were what modern-day legends were created out of. Let's look at the second thing. The authors didn't write the stories like legends. As I had mentioned earlier, it was more in the literary form back in the time of Jesus in those days. There were a couple of guys. <laughs> you ready for this? Yes, let's go. <laughs> Beowulf. Beowulf. Oh. 
How many of you read Beowulf when you were in school? All right. Okay. He- help, help Pastor Bruce. Beowulf. There you go. I'm going to get that one day. <laughs> Maybe not. I'll probably never mention it again. Or the Iliad. You read the well, Iliad? Anybody read the Iliad? Okay, you know what we're talking about. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. I knew you'd be there. <laughs> These are stories and, and, and large stories that were, that were really larger than life. You know, in, in, in mythology and whatnot. And, and these characters, they were legends in the literary sense. And, and they were amazing and they were awesome. But one thing that you find in the stories is there's no detail. And the reason that there's no detail is because there was no eyewitness. They were just stories that were written by somebody that made it up. In Jesus' day, that's how legends were brought about. It wasn't in detail like the Gospels. The Gospels are full of such detail and such legend, but it is so accurate that it had to be done by an eyewitness. I want to jump over to Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 38 in the New Living. And, and in, this, in this story that, that, that Mark is talking about, the disciples are in the boat and they're crossing over and all of a sudden this big storm comes up. And attacks him. Now, Jesus is in the boat, okay? Now, they've been hanging out with Jesus for a while. So, um, I'm, I'm assuming that this is maybe a test for them to see what they've learned. Now, Jesus isn't worried at all. He's kicking out in the back of the boat. And I want to pick it up here in verse 37. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going down? Look at the detail in this story. It talks about Jesus' head being on a cushion. It talks about how the waves were moving and filling up the boat. And really, it even talks about the emotions of the disciples at the time. Were this written in literary legend form, those details wouldn't have been there. It would have been that the disciples and Jesus went on a boat, the storm came up, and Jesus conquered it. That would have been pretty much it, right? In the literary sense. But because there was an eyewitness here who saw this, who saw this take place and wrote about it, he put in the minute details of what took place. Let's jump to John chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. This is, this is a great story. Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter and some of the disciples and and probably some other people are out on the boat and they're fishing. They're hanging out there. And I want to pick this up in verse 7. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. Easy, now he still is. (laughs) Jumped into the water, headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore, There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. 
I was telling, I was telling, I was talking about in the first service where I had seen some. I've read the story a zillion times, and I saw something in here that I, I I never paid attention or just didn't see before. You know how it goes. Sometimes you read a scripture and all of a sudden something just illuminates in front of you. And it's interesting that it says the disciple Jesus loved, which we all know is John. Okay, the disciple Jesus loved says this to Peter. John didn't jump in the water and go go run to to Jesus. Peter was the one who did it. I just, thought, I just thought that was interesting. And the detail that's in here is amazing to me. They even recounted how many fish were in the net. Mm-hmm. It was a charcoal fire, and they had a fish breakfast with bread. Even the detail of, of, of Peter, who was out there fishing almost naked, putting his clothes back on and swimming to shore. Most people would, put, would just swim and then, never mind. But it's full of detail. If it was written in the literary sense, it wouldn't have said that. It would have just said, man, the guys were out there fishing, saw Jesus on the shore, they came in, had some food. It's a lot of detail. John 8, verses 4 through 8. This is an interesting story and... and, and has caused a lot of debate between scholars and and different people. Um, And if you're wondering what the answer is, I'm probably the only person in the world who knows, because God told me, but no, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. kidding. You know they stone false prophets, right? Good thing we don't live back then. Yeah. (laughs) So you have these Pharisees and religious leaders of the day. And they catch this lady in adultery and they bring her before Jesus. And they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him. Starting in verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. The debate that scholars and people have been having for years is, what did he write in the dust? Because this is critical to our salvation, right? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We talk about it all the time, right? Things, Things that really matter and make a difference to us, we consider closed fists. Things that, you know don't really matter to our salvation and things like that. It's, it's open-handed, right? Does it really matter in the end? And this is one of those things that, that we would consider open-handed. It, it really doesn't matter what he wrote. And if it did matter, John would have put it down. He would have wrote in there. But I find it interesting, John, the author, he was there. He witnessed it. He saw it. He didn't, he didn't put in there what Jesus wrote because it, it probably doesn't really matter, right? That's not the issue of the story. Um, I would venture to guess that they probably knew that what she was doing because one of them caught her in the act because they were with her. But that's another story. The detail in the story is crazy, right? It's awesome. You know, they break down who she is, what she did, what should happen to her for doing that. And then, and then it talks about how angry and upset they are and how they're trying to trick Jesus. And it gets into the detail of how Jesus answers them and sends them off on their way. It's not written 
like a literary legend. That would have been written like, the leaders brought this lady who was in adultery, Jesus rebuked him, and everybody went on their way. So these first two arguments are basically arguments from literature, genre ideas. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of historical arguments, and then we'll close here for why I believe that Jesus and the stories of Jesus aren't legends. Here's the third argument. It's this. The stories of Jesus, or what we call the Gospels, were written very soon after the events happened. One of the things we hear uh, thrown about quite often in our culture today is that uh, the, the, the Bible has has been rewritten and paraphrased and changed and everybody's just kind of contributed their stuff to it. But we have very, very old uh, copies of the Gospels that are very, very close to the original copies as they would have been written. Ancient copies. In, in fact, scholars believe, and it's almost universal, scholars believe that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written between 40 and 60 years after the events took place. In, in the sense of history, that's very close to when that times happened. That's considered extremely historically reliable. By contrast, some of the other Gospels that are in the news a lot these days, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, these things that are gaining a lot of attention in our culture today, they were written in some cases hundreds of years later. And they don't explain events in any credible way uh, because they're not written by eyewitnesses or by people that were close to it. And so uh, we can argue from the age of the Gospels that they're believable and reliable because they were written so soon after the facts took place. But this last one, number four, is the one that really uh, gets me. I love this. This is something that we really have to take into consideration. It's this. The eyewitnesses were still alive when the Gospels were written. The eyewitnesses were still there. In fact, I would say that the Gospels probably wouldn't even exist today if they couldn't have been historically verified at the time they were written. Uh, let me give you some examples. In Luke's Gospel, uh, he opens his story of Jesus with this paragraph. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. In other words, what he's saying is there's some copies of the stories of Jesus. They're, they're circulating, and they were written by eyewitnesses. Some people believe that he was probably referring to the Gospel of Mark that had been circulating, and Luke had a copy of the Gospel of Mark. And he goes on to say, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write a careful account for you, and then he says, most honorable Theophilus, that's who he was writing this for. So, and here's the purpose of his writing, so that you can be certain of the, what? Truth, Truth of everything you've been taught. What's Luke saying? He's saying, Theophilus, I'm writing this down so you can know what's really true. I'm a historian, I've investigated, I've talked to the eyewitnesses, and this is what I have found. He was like an investigative journalist. And, and, and from a historical perspective, we can trust Luke because he did his homework. Mark is kind of similar. In chapter 15, Mark tells the story. This is happening as Jesus is on his way to be crucified and he's carrying his cross. Mark writes this uh, very simple sentence. 
a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross. And then he puts his little quip in parentheses that's fascinating. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, if you've ever read that, you've probably passed right over it and said, okay, I don't know those dudes. I don't, I don't care who they are. Okay? But do you know why Mark put those names in there? Because what he was saying to his readers was, um, Alexander and Rufus, they're still around. They're hanging out with us. And they'll tell you that their dad carried the cross of Jesus. Okay? And, and Mark is saying, if you want to check my facts, go talk to Alexander and Rufus. They'll tell you about Simon. They'll tell you what their dad told them. Eyewitness accounts. And then I think my favorite one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This isn't actually one of the Gospels, but Paul was writing to a group of, of churches. And, and this writing was actually written just 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Just 20 years. Paul writes this. I passed on to you. What was most important and what had already been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. And in this context, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying Christ died just as the Old Testament prophesied. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Prophecy was fulfilled. And then he says this, shifts. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some of them have died. But Paul is saying, look, if you're you're questioning whether Jesus really raised from the dead, we have nearly 500 people that saw him alive. It's not a legend. It's not a made-up story. There's people still alive when Paul is writing and when these people are reading his letter who can go and check the sources. This is credible history. It's credible history. In fact, one of the the documents that I was reading recently was talking about the historical reliability of the Gospels. And they said this, there's more historic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for the assassination of President Lincoln. Does that make you think at all? If, if, if the Gospels don't rise up to our level of, of verification, then we can't even know whether or not Abraham Lincoln was really assassinated. And, and that's how reliable these documents are from a historical perspective. So this is my conclusion. I believe that Jesus is exactly who the Gospels say he is. I believe that Jesus is exactly who the gospels say he is. And I would take it one step further and say this, because Jesus had complete confidence in the rest of the Bible, I trust his judgment. Again and again and again, Jesus verified that the scriptures were reliable. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses, I came to fulfill it. In Matthew 22, he said, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. In other words, Jesus has said, this is, this is life-giving that you know the scriptures. You have to know. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture, it says, Old Testament and New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God. 
Some of the newer translations use the word inspired. All scripture is inspired by God. That, that seems to imply to me that, oh, I feel like writing the Bible today. You know, and That's really, that's not strong enough. This, this translation really says it perfectly if you know the Greek language. All scripture is breathed out by God. And because it is, it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. You can trust the reliability of the scriptures and you can read it literally. So with that in mind, we want to talk about a couple of next steps and then we're going to pray. So the first next step is this. Get to know Jesus from the gospel. And I had mentioned in, in, in first service that if you go to a court today, they only need one reliable witness. There have been hundreds and thousands of witnesses who witnessed what went on with Jesus and confirmed it. Get to know Jesus of the gospel. It's true. It's historically proven. And getting to know Jesus will change your life. Number two, get to know the truth from the rest of the Bible. You know, the Old Testament There's so much in the Old Testament about a coming Jesus, and you can learn a lot about Jesus in the Old Testament and so much more as God had given that to the prophets back then. And in the New Testament with Paul, as Pastor had talked about the reliability when he talked about 1 Corinthians and how transformation can take place in your life as you spend time in the the New Testament books of the Bible, beyond the gospel, a lot of them of which Paul wrote. So get to know Jesus through the gospel and get to know the truth from the rest of the gospel. Can I have everybody stand and can I get the band up here, please? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, God. We just thank you that your word is truth. Your word is right. And what you spoke to us in the Bible has been historically proven and backed up. Father, I pray right now that hearts, God, Lord, in this place are turning to you even right now. Father, anybody who has any doubts towards the gospel and who you are, Father, pray that you start working on their hearts even right now, God. Father, help us, help us to view the Bible and the things that you spoke in the Bible differently. God, help us to get a hold of those things which you've spoken to us. Teach us, give us understanding. Thank you for it, in Jesus' name.